Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And welcome to our third installment on the history, so far, of the video game developer company Ubisoft. Now, in our first episode, we learned how five brothers in France diversified the family business of selling farming equipment by getting into hardware and software distribution. You know, computer hardware and software. As you do. We also learned how they took that business and then they built a new company centered around developing and publishing video games and how that company, Ubisoft, grew steadily. And in the second episode, we followed up on Ubisoft having a success with a game called Rayman and an early acquisition of a U.S.-based video game developer called Red Storm and how the company launched into an era of expansion that was impressive by any measure. The company opened up new studios, they bought out other companies, they acquired assets from organizations, some of which were also coincidentally founded by those brothers, and all while a bigger fish in the form of Electronic Arts was circling the company with a threat of a hostile takeover. Now, at the end of that last episode, we learned that EA divested itself of a large number of shares in Ubisoft, and with the threat of a hostile takeover fading away, Ubisoft pushed even harder to grow while launching and advancing franchises like Far Cry, Assassin's Creed, and numerous Tom Clancy-related video game titles. Another asset that originally belonged to a different company founded by one of the Guillermo brothers was a Quebec studio that had been part of Longtail Studios, and that traced its origin back to Gerard Guillermo. And that's a case in point, right? Anyway, Ubisoft would purchase that Quebec studio from Longtail, and Longtail would retain its other studios for the time being, and then you know Ubisoft just folded that into Ubisoft's Quebec office. And I realize I keep saying Quebec and Quebec, and that's just me, I guess. Anyway, as I mentioned in the last episode, Ubisoft had recently purchased a company called Alliant, which made uh, free-to-play games, and we would soon see elements of the free-to-play microtransaction strategy work its way into various Ubisoft games, even those that are not themselves free-to-play games. We'd see that microtransaction make its way into AAA titles. So let's see what happens next, because this episode should bring us up to present day, and it's going to include some particularly dramatic stories, including another possible hostile takeover and widespread allegations of serious misconduct within the company. In 2012, Ubisoft released Far Cry 3. Now, if you recall, the original Far Cry game came out of a different development studio called Crytek, Crytek built a game engine called the CryEngine and built the original Far Cry in that game engine. Then Ubisoft bought that IP for the Far Cry series as well as the right to use that particular version of the CryEngine. And from that moment forward, the CryEngine forked into two pathways. At Crytek, it remained the CryEngine and continued to evolve there. Under Ubisoft, it would turn into the game engine called Dunia, and it would evolve separately. So these diverging pathways. Ubisoft continued to tweak and build onto the Dunia engine, and Far Cry 3 came out of Dunia 2, which included some new features like global lighting. And lighting in video games is a really big deal, which 
I get sounds pretty obvious because after all, our vision is based off of how light interacts with the environments around us. Uh, A lot of recent focus on video game graphics has really been about the interplay of light with different surfaces. Uh, You may have heard of ray tracing. That mostly refers to the way light behaves with specific types of surfaces, like a pane of glass or a reflective puddle of water. Well, the Dunia 2 engine was kind of a step toward that direction, although ray tracing wouldn't really be a thing you would hear about in the video game world for a bit longer. Far Cry 3's pre-sales were a little bit underwhelming. Now, just in case you're not aware somehow, pre-ordering or pre-sales, that just means you lay down your cold, hard cash for a game before that game is even available. And the idea is that the moment the game does come out, you've secured your copy. Now, in the old days, when physical media dominated the video game market, this was something that gamers would do at retail stores so that when those game copies showed up to their local store, they would have a reserved copy of their own, and in theory, they wouldn't have to worry about the store having sold out of the the game before they were able to get there. Today, in the era of digital delivery, a pre-order means that again, in theory anyway, you should be able to download a game the moment it goes live, and so your gaming experience will start as soon as you've got enough of the game downloaded to launch it, and so it's kind of dependent on your internet connection speed. In recent years, companies have even allowed downloads to begin way ahead of schedule, and then the moment a game goes live is kind of like a switch turning off, and it allows gamers to access a game that has already been installed on their systems. So, let's say a game goes live at midnight, the game has already been downloaded to the gamer's machine, it's just that the activation code isn't, uh, isn't actually active until midnight, and then boom, you can start playing. Game companies love pre-orders because it looks great on a balance sheet, you know, to get those revenue numbers up early. It's a great thing to share with shareholders, to say to your your stockholders, hey, this game is going to do incredibly well. It helps bring the share price of your company up, the value of your company goes up. Lots of positive things can happen due to those numbers from a corporate standpoint. And it really helps balance out the costs of development. And I mentioned that in the last episode, that those can get really high. We're going to talk more about that in this episode. But from a gamer perspective, it satisfies an urge for gratification, at least for the feeling that you get when a game comes into your possession. But it also comes along with risks, because if the game isn't very good, or if it has a lot of bugs or other issues, then the gamers who pre-ordered it are stuck with it. You, You didn't give the industry time to dive into and dissect the game, right? You didn't get a chance to read the reviews and find out if the game was actually any good or if it was well made. Maybe you saw an awesome trailer for the game and that sold you on the experience, so you plop down your $60 or whatever to pre-order the game, only when the day comes and you finally get it, you realize that the playing experience just doesn't live up to that trailer. If you pre-order, you also typically pay whatever the highest price is for that version of the game. And sometimes games will launch, and for whatever reason, it becomes clear that there's just not a big place in the market for that game, at least not as big as what the company was anticipating. And typically, companies will mark down the price of a game when that happens. 
recapturing some of the cost of development is better than not getting anything. So it can pay if you just wait a little bit, even just for a short while, to make sure that one, the game is worth it, and two, maybe the price comes down so that even if the game wasn't perfect, with the lower price, it is worth it. Pre-orders would later introduce other issues in the gaming industry in general. For example, one way to encourage people to pre-order a game is to pair exclusive content to a specific outlet's pre-order system. So if you were to pre-order a game with one retailer, then you would get one set of exclusive content. But if you had gone with a different retailer, you would get a different set of exclusive content. And there'd be no way for a completionist to get everything because of how that content gets sliced up like that. Now, later on, you might get a game of the year edition that groups them all together, but that's much later. And this would be something that gamers would complain about with Ubisoft titles further on, particularly with Watch Dogs. The Far Cry 3 numbers, as I mentioned, were a little disappointing. Now, that being said, once the game came out and reviews started coming in, sales actually started to pick up. Most reviews praised the gameplay and the setting. There were some criticisms that were leveled more against the story and the characters, uh, which saw gamers take on a protagonist who is trying to rescue his friends who've been captured by modern-day pirates and smugglers. Uh, some critics felt that the speed at which your character, who kind of starts off just as a normal average guy, suddenly becomes like an unstoppable killing machine was just unrealistic. And it also follows the trope in which you've got a group of natives who are incapable of helping themselves and so they have to rely upon some white champion to come into the picture and save them. Ubisoft developers were creating a game in which morality wasn't an absolute, so you could play in a way that was, you know, considered morally good or morally evil. But in the process, they also relied kind of heavily on some pretty negative narrative elements. So Far Cry 3 would end up being a success, but it would take a little more time for those sales numbers to come up. Meanwhile, Ubisoft was really leaning heavily on the Assassin's Creed franchise, releasing Assassin's Creed 3 in 2012. Now, you might have heard me say in the previous episode that Ubisoft is a company frequently associated with crunch around this time. And crunch refers to the amount of intense work that leads up to the release of a game. When you look at the release schedule of Assassin's Creed games, you start to realize that this could be a pretty grueling schedule. Uh, I'll just talk about the main release games in the Assassin's Creed series. These are the ones that came out for consoles and computer systems, but keep in mind, there were a ton of Assassin's Creed games, some of which were released for handheld systems, some for mobile devices like smartphones, some for computers and consoles, but they weren't part of the main storyline. So I'm just going to look at the main one. You've got the first game in 2007. You had Assassin's Creed 2, which came out two years later in 2009. Then you've got Assassin's Creed Brotherhood, uh, an add-on kind of to part two. That came out in 2010. And Assassin's Creed Revelations in 2011, which also tied back to Assassin's Creed 2. Now, I just mentioned that Assassin's Creed 3 came out in 2012. Assassin's Creed 4, Black Flag, which was, again, my personal favorite of all the Assassin's Creed games that I have played, but I have not played all of them. That one came out in 2013. Uh, Assassin's Creed Rogue and Assassin's Creed Unity both came out in 2014. So we got two Assassin's Creed mainline games that year. 
Uh, I have a little bit more to say about Unity in here, but just imagine two major releases of a flagship franchise in the same year. That is crazy. Assassin's Creed Syndicate would follow in 2015, and then we finally would get a one-year gap between major releases and the main storyline, with Assassin's Creed Origins hitting in 2017. Then we get Assassin's Creed Odyssey in 2018. Then we get another one-year gap, and this year we got Assassin's Creed Valhalla. Now again, those are just the major games. There are at least an equal number of other titles that are spinoffs of this franchise, but they don't qualify as part of the main sequence of Assassin's Creed titles. Now, it was almost as if the Assassin's Creed franchise was like a sports game. Because, you know, every year we expect to see a new version of specific sports franchises like Madden, right? And we expect to see an updated player roster to reflect the most current version of teams in various sports. But we were getting that in this fantasy sci-fi assassin-based game series. There was a real danger of oversaturating the market and burning out the player base, not to mention working the developers into an early grave. Though to be fair, it wasn't like the exact same group of developers were making every single game in the series. This was spread out across the global network of studios at Ubisoft, with specific studios kind of taking point on the big titles. Ubisoft Montreal was largely responsible for the main development of the main series. But this also meant that as Ubisoft tried to keep up the pace, it would occasionally release games that, at least initially, were pretty darn broken. Assassin's Creed III had its historical setting take place during the American Revolutionary War, so it actually took place in the American colonies. The game added lots of new features to the Assassin's Creed franchise, including the ability to command a ship, like a, a sailing ship, and that would become a much larger part in Black Flag later, obviously, because that's a, that's a pirate game. But it also featured a pretty long lead-up to the point where anything assassiny happens. You're playing that game for a long time before you start getting into something that feels like Assassin's Creed. Now, overall, the game got positive reviews, though a lot of articles that rank the various entries of the Assassin's Creed series will frequently put part three in the bottom half. It's not the bottom bottom. It's not the worst of the games, but it typically does not merit inclusion in the top 50% on a lot of lists. In 2013, Ubisoft made another pair of acquisitions, purchasing the Future Games of London studio out of, um, well, it says here London, the UK, uh, and also the Digital Chocolate studio that was in Barcelona, Spain. Now, these studios focused primarily on developing games for mobile and social networking platforms. Also, side note, the company Digital Chocolate was founded by Trip Hawkins. Now, that's the guy who founded Electronic Arts, which coincidentally was the company that for a while looked like it was on the verge of doing that hostile takeover of Ubisoft. But Trip Hawkins had left long before that. And he's also the guy who was behind the failed 3DO console, which I covered in a recent Tech Stuff series. Anyway, Ubisoft acquired the Barcelona studio, but not the overall company of Digital Chocolate. Uh, Hawkins had already stepped down from leadership at Digital Chocolate a year earlier, 
and the company would only be in business for one more year before it sold off its games to another company, so it didn't stick around for very long. That summer, Ubisoft went public with some news that wasn't so positive. Someone had managed to find a vulnerability in Ubisoft's corporate network, probably through a web vulnerability, and they breached Ubisoft's systems. According to the company, this meant that up to 58 million people may have had their usernames, their email addresses, and their encrypted passwords exposed. Now that's obviously not great, but it could have been a lot worse. The fact that the passwords were at least encrypted means they weren't immediately useful to the hackers. The hackers would first need to break that encryption to get at the passwords that were encrypted underneath. But it serves as a great reminder for all of us. First, we should all choose strong passwords for the services we use. Second, we should use a unique password for every single service because if someone manages to breach a service you use, they could potentially get at your password. And if you're using the same password everywhere, you've just handed them the keys to everything, right? You don't want to do that. It can really put you at risk. Or if you're trying to be really careful and you find out that your password was potentially stolen, then you have to go through the hassle of changing that password for every service you use, which is not super fun. The third point I would like to remind people to do is to get a password vault program to keep all your passwords. A lot of them also have password generators built in, and those will create really strong passwords on your behalf and keep track of them. Uh, it takes a lot of the work out of trying to practice good security habits. So quick reminder there. Ubisoft stated that this security breach did not touch any systems that stored payment information, so that was also a big relief. Uh, people with accounts on Ubisoft services received messages that urged them to change their passwords since a determined hacker might actually go through the trouble to decrypt passwords if they had enough time and processing power. Security experts criticized Ubisoft, saying that it failed to be transparent about what security measures were actually in place. A few experts pointed out that while passwords may have been encrypted, there was no indication as to how Ubisoft was encrypting them, and weak encryption could really be an issue. Generally, the response was that Ubisoft's approach didn't inspire confidence, and a more recent hack this year seems to give a bit of credence to those concerns. Now, when we come back, we'll revisit the subject of hackers, except this time it will be within the context of playing a hacker in a video game. But first, let's take a quick break. In 2014, Ubisoft launched a new IP in the form of Watch Dogs. The game series is set in a world not too different from our own, one in which electronic devices gather endless amounts of data that corporations then use to make, uh, let's see, uh, I think the technical term is gobs of money. In each of the games, you play as a hacker protagonist, or sometimes multiple protagonists, who has to navigate this dystopian surveillance world and compromise systems and turn the technology against the corporate overlords and navigate the seedy criminal underbelly of society and generally try and accomplish specific goals that may or may not be selfish. Uh, Ubisoft Montreal was responsible 
for the first title in the series, and they would also create the sequel that would come out in 2014. The third game in the series, Watch Dogs Legion, just recently launched in 2020, but this one actually came out of Ubisoft Toronto, not Montreal. Now, I've mentioned a few times about how games have become incredibly complex, and as a result, the cost of development goes up, which in turn puts a lot more pressure on finding ways to make a profit from a game. And just to give you some perspective, the budget for the first Watch Dogs game, which had been in development since before 2010, was nearly $70 million dollars. Now, these days, it's not unusual for a AAA title to have a budget comparable to what you would see for a feature-length film, which is incredible. In addition, around 1,000 people worked on Watch Dogs, and Ubisoft Montreal built it using a brand new game engine called Disrupt, which Ubisoft Montreal had also built. Those guys are pretty busy. The title sold 4 million copies in its first week, which broke the company and the industry's then record for most copies of a brand new IP sold within that first week. It would then go on to sell at least another 6 million copies. So that first Watch Dogs game wasn't without some road bumps. Upon its release, some people were upset that Ubisoft created not one, not two, but four different collector's editions of the game. In addition, a few people alleged that Ubisoft had purposefully and artificially made the game look better graphically when they did a video preview of the title at E3 2012. They claimed that the end game, the one that actually came out, that the graphics had been downgraded. Ubisoft, for its part, categorically denied this claim. Critics praised the game's gameplay and the setting of Chicago, but there was a less of a positive consensus about the story and the characters of the game. Now, I'm going to go ahead and close out the Watch Dogs discussion here because I just think it makes more sense to, to follow up on that rather than to go year by year. So the sequel, Watch Dogs 2, came out two years after the first game. So this one came out in 2016, and this one was set in San Francisco. And the protagonist was, again, a hacker, but a different character than from the first game. Ubisoft tweaked a lot of the gameplay elements after having received feedback on the first Watch Dogs game. And Watch Dogs 2 would launch with a few glitches and bugs, which frustrated critics and fans. But Ubisoft would fairly quickly follow up the launch with a game patch that helped smooth out these problems. Generally speaking, critics also seemed to like the tone of the second game more than they liked the tone of the first game. The original Watch Dogs had a fairly serious tone, and the sequel had some more lighthearted and silly moments, and also had a protagonist who wasn't so stoic as the main character of the first game. Many people, however, also pointed out that the main character of the second game, his name is Marcus, was written in such a way as to make him a, a good person, within the narrative of the game, and that's fine, except the game also allows players to do stuff like harm or kill innocent bystanders. That doesn't affect the way the story unfolds, so you could play Marcus like a homicidal maniac, but narratively speaking within the game, you would be treated as if you were still this really good guy with a strong moral code, so there's a bit of a disconnect there. Like Far Cry 3, the pre-order sales for Watch Dogs 2 didn't meet 
company projections. Uh, it would take more time for players to commit to buying the game and reaching the sales figures that Ubisoft had been hoping for. And then we've got Watch Dog Legion, developed primarily by Ubisoft Toronto. This title came out in late October 2020 after being delayed half a year, um, and I'll talk a little bit about the decision to postpone games toward the end of this episode, and I'm sure the pandemic didn't help at all. But this game shifts the action to London, England, and it also features a pretty neat concept for the protagonist. So instead of playing as an established main character and playing that character all the way through, in Legion, you pick a starting character, but then you can also switch identities as you play as characters who are recruited into an underground hacker resistance organization. So recruiting someone gives you access to them as a playable character, and each in-game candidate has their own skills and quirks. Some might be really good at hacking industrial equipment. Some might be able to call upon friends to help them out in a scuffle. And there's also a spy who is a total James Bond gadget guru type. London is pretty dang dystopian, even for a watchdog's game with an authoritarian government that's cracking down on the hacker group. The game has received fairly positive reviews, though not as high as the previous games in the franchise. Also, I mentioned earlier that there was another Ubisoft data breach in 2020, and it ties into Watchdog Legion, because a ransomware group, you may have remembered that I just recently did an episode about ransomware, but a, a group called Egregor claimed to have copied the source code for Watchdog's Legion and then threatened to release it if they weren't paid off. And at first there was some skepticism about whether or not they had ac access the, the source code. Uh, and then apparently they were not paid off. And then not too long ago, uh, the source code has been found with various tracker programs leaked on the internet. So that's kind of yikes. All right, so back to Ubisoft's timeline. In 2014, Ubisoft would release Assassin's Creed Unity, often cited as one of the lesser entries in the main series uh, because of some bugs and other issues. The company also opened up the door for more criticism as well. When gamers discovered that there would be no playable female characters for multiplayer, there was a call on Ubisoft to explain why that was, and the explanation the company gave boiled down to it would have been too hard to include playable women. Essentially, it would have been too much work to put in that art and the animations, and that in turn caused a series of discussions in which critics and even a former Ubisoft developer questioned their reasons that they gave. And the messaging was clear from external sources anyway, representation in games was really starting to matter. Now, you could argue, actually, that it always mattered. It just wasn't paid attention to until relatively recently. Let's get back to 2015. And what would another year be like without an acquisition or 15? Ubisoft bought a French game company called Ivory Tower, which had developed the online racing game the Crew, and Ubisoft also acquired a, a, a Halifax studio from, a, well, hey, look at that, Longtail Studios, the same Guillemont-founded studio that gave Ubisoft more developers in Quebec a few years earlier. Yep, Longtail Halifax, which 
originally launched in 2009, would become Ubisoft Halifax in 2015. Speaking of Ubisoft Quebec, the studio was the lead developer in its first AAA title that year, that being Assassin's Creed Syndicate. Now, in this game, the player would be able to control a pair of protagonists and their brother and sister team, which allowed players to control a woman assassin for the first time in the main series of games. Now, there had been smaller Assassin's Creed spin-off titles that had a female protagonist already, uh, which was another piece of evidence, actually, that seemed to contradict the women are too hard to insert into the game argument that they used for Unity. Syndicate got mixed to generally positive reviews. Uh, I have this game, I've played it, but I, I never finished it. I think I got about maybe halfway through before I just kind of lost interest. And uh, I also always preferred to play as the sister Evie to the brother Jacob. Uh, she was just a much more interesting character to me, much more intelligent, and was much more stealth-based. And Jacob was like, I hit them with my stick real hard. Uh, anyway, on some missions, you just can't choose. You have to play one or the other. Uh, you don't get the option. So whenever I had to play Jacob, I did. But I always looked forward to switching back to Evie because I just thought she was a more interesting character. The game was set in London in the 19th century. It had a very steampunk sensibility to it. Uh, like the Assassin's Hidden Blade you had also had like a, a grappling hook something that some reviewers really didn't like because they felt that it kind of took away from the other Assassin's Creed games. Uh, I don't think so, but that's just my opinion. Uh, it also got dinged by critics for other gameplay features, namely trying to control a horse and cart on the streets of London and various high-speed chases and race sequences. And yeah, that part of the game was not so much fun for me. Much later, various people who worked on Syndicate would reveal that bringing Evie into the series was a serious challenge because there were internal obstacles that writers and developers had to navigate, and a real resistance to allowing the team to make Evie a significant part of the game in the first place. The general philosophy seemed to be a belief that games with a female protagonist just don't sell. I mean, that was the message they were getting over and over again. And uh, the gamers just don't want to play games that have women as the protagonist. They just prefer to have, you know, good old manly men instead. Now, that attitude went all the way up to Serge Ascaway, who had been serving as the head of creative in Ubisoft for more than a decade, almost two decades at that point. And he could get really involved with a major plot and character decision in Ubisoft games even at that point. So... Ultimately, if he didn't want it in the game, then it wasn't going to go into the game. And he was really dead set against having, according to other reports anyway, dead set against having a female protagonist. Now, sticking with this for a second, this issue would again come up in a later Assassin's Creed entry, that of Assassin's Creed Odyssey. Now, that one came out in 2018. And recently, as of this year, stories have emerged that the development team originally wanted to make a, uh, a character called Cassandra the sole protagonist for this game. But they were shot down by Askaway and his team. And the reason that they were given was that, again, that idea that women heroes just don't sell games, which, hey, someone should probably let the Tomb Raider teams know about that because... That seems like a problem. Anyway, because of that opposition, the developer team was compelled 
to give gamers a choice. So they could play as Cassandra, as had been intended from the start, or they could choose to play as her brother, Alexios. Now, we'll get back to sexism and misogyny and stuff before the end of this episode. It is not a good look, and in fact, makes Ubisoft look like another UB company that I've talked about in the past, that being Uber. That's how bad it gets. But one other thing that happened in 2015 that we'll focus on next is, remember when Electronic Arts quietly scooped up a significant percentage of ownership in Ubisoft, and that led to that fear of a hostile takeover? Well, let's get ready to repeat history, like we're going into the Animus to go back into time, because in the fall of 2015, Vivendi, another French company, which has a history even more complicated than Ubisoft does, revealed that it had purchased a big chunk of Ubisoft shares. And we get ready to go on that hostile takeover ride all over again. Before we do that, though, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsors. Yves Guillemont stated that Ubisoft would fight off any hostile takeover attempts from Vivendi. But boy, howdy. It sure did look like that was how this story was going to go. It looked like Vivendi was ultimately going to take over Ubisoft. Between 2015 and 2018, Vivendi would continually attempt to increase its holdings in Ubisoft, getting larger and larger percentages of shares in the company. Meanwhile, the Guillemont brothers, whose shares in the company amounted to about 9% of total ownership back in 2015, were doing everything they could to increase their own holding in Ubisoft and secure votes from other shareholders to prevent Vivendi from taking over. And at one point, Vivendi pressured Ubisoft to try and uh, have them include Vivendi executives on the Ubisoft board of directors. You know, after all, according to their argument, Vivendi owned more than 20% of the company at that point, and they argued that that should give them a seat at the table at the board of directors. But the Guillemot brothers countered this argument. They said that such an arrangement would be a conflict of interests because Vivendi and Ubisoft were competing in the same marketplace. So the brothers were successful in staving off that move, and the two sides were in a bit of a stalemate, and each side was trying to scoop up shares whenever they became available on the market to prevent the other side from getting controlling interest. In the meantime, even though Vivendi repeatedly said it wasn't seeking a hostile takeover, the company would acquire another Guillemont operation, the game studio Gameloft. You might remember I mentioned that one in the last episode. And how did Vivendi take over Gameloft? Well, they did it via a hostile takeover. So Ubisoft executives weren't terribly convinced of Vivendi's uh, sincerity regarding the whole, no, seriously, seriously, dude, no, I'm not after your company. Like, that just didn't come across as genuine, I imagine. In 2018, after the Battle of Attrition, in which both sides were trying desperately to counter the other, they came to some sort of agreement, and Vivendi agreed that it would divest itself of its shares in Ubisoft over the course of the next couple of years. And at that point, Vivendi owned more than 27% of Ubisoft. That's incredible. 
Vivendi also agreed to a condition that it would not acquire shares in Ubisoft for at least five years after this transaction. Other investors, including the brothers themselves, would buy up some of those Vivendi shares, kind of splitting them up between them. And one investor that acquired 5% of all of the shares of Ubisoft was Tencent. That's the Chinese conglomerate that has stake in multiple companies around the world. And it has created tension in various markets, but that's a story for another time. But they are a significant holder in in the video games industry in general. And this investment represented something of real value for Ubisoft as well. It, It represented the chance to make a bigger impact in the Chinese market. And that represents billions of dollars in revenue. So it wasn't an unwelcome investment. While Ubisoft and Vivendi were still jockeying for position in a battle to own the company, Ubisoft kept doing the two things that really it had become known for. Publishing video games and growing, expanding the company even more. So it opened up studios in the Philippines, it opened up one in Serbia, and it acquired a mobile game studio in France called Ketchup. And Ubisoft did shut down one studio in 2016. That was Ubisoft Casablanca in Morocco. Uh, They said that the way that the video games industry was moving, there was just no real place for that studio anymore. So that one got shut down. But also in 2016, a former Ubisoft developer named Maxime Baudouin wrote a blog post explaining his decision to leave Ubisoft, even though it was his quote-unquote dream job. Now, in that post, he revealed that the process of creating a game in Ubisoft was just so gargantuan that it was hard to feel that you were actually contributing anything significant. And he explained that Ubisoft just had so many studios working on each title that development literally never stopped during the week because while it was quitting time at one studio, there'd be another studio in a different part of the world where the day was just getting started and so developers would just be picking right up where the others had been leaving off. And with as many as a thousand people working on a single game, he said you just couldn't avoid but feel like you were a little cog in a giant machine. And cogs are replaceable, which he said was having a a really big negative impact on morale and motivation. He said that if you get to a point where each person is specializing to such a minute degree because you have just so many different bodies working on this game, then it doesn't take a lot of imagination to to envision a scenario where the company replaces you because it's a very specific task that you are doing. So he said that that was really demotivating for a lot of people. He said that these were problems that go along with creating huge games with equally huge teams and This was not necessarily specific to Ubisoft itself, but rather is an industry problem. And the push to crank out title after title in big franchises perpetuates this problem. And it can burn out developers in the process, and it can also have an effect on gamers who start to feel like they're getting too much of the same sort of thing. Now, there have been a lot of pieces written about the trend of open world games in general, because those are some of the biggest, most sprawliest games in gaming. And the effect that that has on the gaming experience, there's been a lot of criticism directed toward games that are huge and open, but maybe not that interesting to inhabit or to explore or to play in, or that these games often have so much busy work 
in the form of like side quests or fetch quests or Lord help you if you have a escort mission or, or things like that. And, and they become tedious to play. Anecdotally, I can say at least that there are more than a few games that I've been a, a really big fan of that are big and sprawling. Like, I love games like Skyrim and Fallout and Assassin's Creed Black Flag and that kind of thing. But it's actually pretty rare that I finish the storyline of those games. I will pour dozens of hours and I will chase down quests and eventually I lose steam before I ever see the end of the story. Now, a big part of that is my fault, of course. You know, I own up to that. I feel compelled to complete every side quest I can before I move on with the story because I always worry that if I continue the story, I might miss out. I might go too far to complete certain side quests and I want to see everything until I'm just tired and I stop. So I sabotage myself, but I'm not alone. And recently there's been a growing kind of resistance to this trend of the big sprawling games, or at least there's been a renewed interest in games that are more compact and less dependent on this concept of it's got to be the biggest X game ever, you know, Fallout or Skyrim or Elder Scrolls, I guess I should say. And we're starting to see at least some people push back against that, although the studios are definitely still going down that, that pathway. In 2017, Ubisoft acquired the IP for a free-to-play game called Grotopia. Uh, it acquired Freestyle Games in the UK. Uh, they turned that into uh, a, their own Ubisoft studio. And they opened up new studios in Berlin, in Bordeaux, in another one in Canada, another one in Stockholm. And, and it released more games, obviously. They, they released games like Ghost Recon Wildlands. And they also released a game called For Honor, that last one was actually a new IP, which is kind of interesting, you know, that you weren't seeing a lot of new IPs from Ubisoft at this point. It was mostly another, you know, another entry in the various franchises. But in this one, uh, players control a warrior who belongs to one of four factions. You've got Vikings, uh, you've got European-style knights, you've got Japanese samurai, and you have Chinese warriors. And the game is primarily an online multiplayer action game. There is a single-player campaign as well. And the online multiplayer has seasons of faction wars. And during the faction war, during a season, the activities across all playable platforms of this game determine which factions have control of different territories on the world map, which is kind of a neat idea. And early on, there were some technical issues with this game, particularly like if someone left a match early, it can crash a whole game. But it has since been patched and there are dedicated servers that have improved its stability. Uh, I don't know how healthy the traffic is. Like, I don't know how popular the game is. It does seem like Ubisoft has sort of slowed down in its support of the game. They aren't releasing as much new content for, for Honor uh, recently as they had in past. But uh, it was interesting that they took this risk. In 2018, Ubisoft would acquire Blue Mammoth Games, which was headquartered here in Atlanta. And they also bought 1492 Studio. Uh, they opened up more studios around the world, including yet another in Canada. So many in Canada. Another in the Ukraine and one in India. And it launched Far Cry 5. And a, a real quick aside on that one. So Far Cry 5 moved the action to America. And this was a big departure for the series. In promotional materials, it looked like the antagonists in the game were going to belong to a far-right militia slash cult group. And there was a lot of buzz leading up to the game's release 
about what sort of political statement the game might make given the real-world political climate of the United States. And much of the criticism I saw for the game centered on the lack of a real perspective on anything substantial. Some critics were a bit more devastating in their review than others. For example, Polygon Review's subtitle was A Horrible Story Ruins an Enjoyable World. Yikes. Now, I have not played this game, so I have no stake in this. I don't, you know, it doesn't do anything for me if it's good or not good. But everything I've seen tells me that I feel like I would kind of agree with that Polygon review based on what I've read. Uh, along with the complaints about the lack of substance was a continuation of a trend of building a game on top of a really heavy set of concepts, but then putting sort of frivolous and silly and arcadey type things on top of that. And then on top of that, creating a sense that you're a bad person for enjoying the silly things that the game has put in there for your entertainment. Uh, I've seen similar stuff in games from other publishers, like the Grand Theft Auto series. I've seen that there too, but that's arguably a topic for another podcast. Fortunately, I have another podcast that is coming out soon. That's a that's foreshadowing. By 2019, Ubisoft had around 16,000 developers in its various studios around the world, which is an astoundingly large number of developers. It was producing more AAA titles than its competitors, sometimes two or three times as many titles per year as their competitors. However, it was also lagging behind its top competitors when it came to certain metrics, like the net revenue generated per employee at the company. The financials pointed to sort of a law of diminishing returns. Ubisoft made the choice to postpone half of the titles it had planned to release in 2019 and push them back to 2020. And the goal here was to give the titles more time to evolve and develop. Now, generally, Ubisoft had a decent reputation as far as a more typical production problem type approach. Like they, they weren't known for crunch at this stage, not like other companies were not like Ubisoft had been known for a few years earlier, but in another very critical way, the company's reputation was about to take a huge hit in 2020, a ton of allegations about sexual harassment, assault, and general toxicity in Ubisoft's management became public. To chronicle all of these allegations would take a full episode and it would get really ugly, but it became clear that there was a deep systemic issue with sexism, misogyny, harassment, abuse, and hiding that abuse within certain divisions at Ubisoft, particularly in Paris and in Montreal, though definitely in other offices as well. Throughout 2020, Numerous reports surfaced that detailed a really awful situation within the company. Numerous women reported that they had either experienced or witnessed firsthand unacceptable and, in some cases at least, arguably criminal displays of behaviors and management practices. It also became clear that Ubisoft's HR department had fallen far short of where it needed to be. Like, it should have been responding to these allegations, but in many cases, it seemed as though human resources existed largely to silence allegations and to protect a group of executives and managers who are kind of insulated from suffering any consequences. And it really did sound a lot like Uber, when Uber was at its worst before that whole system came crashing down. 
These accusations went all the way up to the executive level, and a lot of them were aimed at Serge Ascoway himself. Now, as I mentioned, Ascoway had served as a creative director at Ubisoft for ages, essentially having the ultimate say about what could or couldn't go into games. Developers frequently indicated that it was Ascoway who would argue that games should feature male protagonists, and he was also said to have conducted business meetings in places like strip clubs, which I think we can all agree on is not an appropriate place to do business unless, of course, you work at or with that club in some way. Then sure, okay, but it certainly created a hostile work environment for a lot of people at the company. Several women alleged that Askaway had acted inappropriately with them or with colleagues of theirs and that he made inappropriate comments, sometimes worse, and he allowed for an extremely sexist work environment. There were claims that it wasn't unusual to see pornographic images or videos on computers within his department, and that this was essentially overlooked or perhaps maybe even encouraged, kind of like, you know, a, a fraternity, like the stereotypical fraternity at a party college. And it was not, as I said, a good look. Under intense pressure... Ubisoft responded by getting rid of many of those leaders who came under those allegations. Some of them resigned, being told to do that by the company, essentially. Some of them were fired. There were questions about whether or not Yves Guillemont knew about these problems within the company. I mean, he is CEO after all. At least a few reporters have suggested that it would be unusual for him not to have known because some of these complaints stretch back more than a decade. Now, among those at Ubisoft who left were uh, Ashraf Ismail, the creative director for Assassin's Creed Valhalla. He left after several uh, sexual harassment claims were, were leveled against him. Uh, Maxime Belland, the co-founder of Ubisoft Toronto and the one of the vice presidents of the editorial department, uh, Tommy Francois, another vice president of editorial and creative services. Uh, Yanis Malat, the managing director of Ubisoft Studios in Canada. Cecile Cornet, the head of global HR. And Serge Ascoway himself left the company. On top of these, Michel Ansel, the creator of Raymond and Beyond Good and Evil, would also leave Ubisoft. Ansel came under fire for alleged toxic leadership behaviors. Now, as far as I can tell, these did not seem to extend to sexual harassment problems, but that he did create a hostile work environment and was reportedly very difficult to work with. Now, according to the complaints, he would change the requirements of games and, and throw development into chaos, and some employees said that he could be really abusive. Ansel, for his part, denies these allegations. He says they're not accurate. And he would go on to retire from the games industry, including his own studio that he had founded, and go to work on a wildlife sanctuary. And he continues to dispute the claims that had been made against him. Since all the complaints, Ubisoft executive leadership have made some big changes at the company. They created some new positions to oversee workplace culture worldwide, and they created another one that will be in charge of leading initiatives to improve diversity and inclusion within the company. They also announced that bonuses for team leaders are going to be tied to creating positive work environments. Meanwhile, the company continues to conduct internal investigations as it tries to assure shareholders that real change is happening behind the scenes. This isn't 
performative. At least that's the argument being made. Now, on top of all that, there was a recent incident at Ubisoft Montreal. A threatening call of some sort was made to the office or relayed to emergency services, which prompted the evacuation of the Ubisoft Montreal headquarters, with some Ubisoft employees essentially barricading themselves on the office's rooftop. Uh, Initial reports indicated that there was some sort of hostage situation going on, and it was a tense situation for many hours, until ultimately authorities determined that the whole thing was prompted by a hoax. There had never been a real threat. As of this recording, there is no word on who made that initial call or what motivation they had for doing it. On the horizon, Ubisoft is working on the next Far Cry game, Far Cry 6. That one's due out in 2021. Uh, There's still work being done on the Beyond Good and Evil 2 game, which I think is a prequel. Uh, There is an update coming to the city-building game The Settlers, which I don't think has had a game in that series for more than a decade, so that's kind of interesting. Uh, And I'm sure at some point I will have to do a follow-up episode on this series to talk about what Ubisoft has done in the wake of 2020. In the meantime, it will be really interesting to see how the company handles itself and whether we will see a new Ubisoft with new games, new characters, new IP, new approaches as a result of all this, because arguably it should become easier to work in things that didn't immediately align with Serge Ascoway's vision of what games should be. So maybe that means in the long run, we're going to get games that, that break free of those restraints. And that could be really cool, but we'll have to wait and see. In the meantime, if you have any suggestions for future topics I should tackle on Tech Stuff, reach out to me. The Twitter handle is TechStuffHSW. This concludes our three-part series on Ubisoft, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.